Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today, episode number 93, I talk with Dr. Sharon Livingston, who is a marketer to the Fortune 500, a psychologist, a coach, a co-founder of the International Coach Certification Academy, of which I am a board member. And in this context, she is an expert on emotional eating. And that's what we tackle in today's call. And a lot of the call is about theory, about her story. But in the middle, we do something that was quite a surprise to me. And she takes me on a journey into my own issues with chocolate. And I think, well, I think it's wonderful to talk about the theory of dealing with emotional eating. What I'm hoping is that um, the part of the interview where I'm kind of on the couch a little bit, uh, and she's taking me through exercises. It feels very vulnerable to me. And I decided to go ahead and share it in the hopes it'll help other people. So you get to see not just um, the, the principles of the psychology of dealing with uh, disordered eating and disordered thinking around eating, but how actually it looks in a real life setting. So I hope that eavesdropping will be will be helpful to folks. Uh, otherwise, I put myself through uh, quite a bit of embarrassment for nothing. So without further ado, Dr. Sharon Livingston, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thank you very much, kind sir. How are you today? I'm very well. So I wanted to talk to you about something that has been an interest of yours and a, I guess a practice specialty for quite a while, which is emotional eating. Yes, and I've practiced that many years. <laughs> Both doing it and uh, helping people stop doing it, right? Well, you know what happens. The thing that you know, you're struggling with yourself, if you finally figure it out, you get all kinds of nice shortcuts to help other people with it. Great. So let's uh, let's share them now. But first, let's let's start with uh, with your own story. So people who are struggling with emotional eating right now, first of all, can you tell us how you define emotional eating? Because I'm sure there's a gamut between oh, this piece of chocolate will make me feel good right now, and kind of more extreme forms. So how do you define emotional eating? Well, that is a form of emotional eating, actually. When when we're eating out of a desire to fill some need other than nutrition, it really is emotional eating. And it's not to say that one shouldn't, but very often we don't feel like we have a choice. Like there is, there's that bowl of M&Ms in the back room of my focus group uh, situation. And I, I'm dealing with a difficult client and they're, 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 they're really driving me crazy. And well, yeah, I've got my broccoli and my organic broccoli and I've got, um, some nice organic tofu. I even have some decent seasoning, but you know, and I have it there, it's there ready for me so that I have something to eat that's nutritious when I'm physically hungry. But, oh my God, there are those colorful M&Ms. And if I take a bite of them, they're going to make me feel so much better because I have something sweet to counterbalance all the annoyance that I have to go through in that long day. Mm. So it sounds a little qualitatively a little bit different to me than I've just had a great meal at someone's house and now they're bringing out a dessert and I'm going to have a small slice of that dessert, even though I'm no, I may be even a little bit full, I may not be eating for nutrition anymore. But it's, it feels like that's different than I'm, I'm 
compelled to eat the M&Ms despite all this other food. Would, would you agree with that? To some extent. I think there really is no reason for dessert. It ruins our digestion. It throws in all kinds of things that, you know, mess us up. You know, why are we doing that? It's not logical. Huh. All right. So, uh, so there, there's a bright line. Um, that when, when Emotional eating is whenever we eat for something other than for nutrition. Exactly. And, and I mean, you know, if I was a purist, that's what I would say. Now, do I never eat for just the pleasure of eating? I mean, you know, we were given bodies that like pleasure, and particularly with regard to food. And as a matter of fact, very often we choose foods instinctively because of taste. And, you know, way back before modern technology and uh, purifying sugar from fruit and, and, you know, it was natural to eat things that called to us and it worked. But that's been absolutely ruined in modern society because we are taste-driven without the nutrition-driven. It used to be a combination. It no longer is. So that's, that's where the emotional piece kind of snuck in. Once there was a gap between our natural taste inclinations and the foods that we evolved to eat. For one. But there are, there are other things as well. Uh, I mean, if you think about what you crave, you know, emotionally with regard to food, you know, like, you know, revealing my own, you know, pathology. I love ice cream. Oh, my God, I love ice cream. I mean, do you have to be a brain scientist to figure out what I'm wanting? <laughs> I'm guessing uh, ice cream? And mother's milk. Ah. You know, it's on an emotional level, I like milky things. I like cream in my coffee. I like the milky, whether it's decaf or, or whatever, I still want the milky. As a matter of fact, if I don't have the cream in my coffee, I don't even want to drink it. So what, am I, what is my body calling for? So mater maternal nurturance, care, love. Comfort. Yeah, yeah. So very often, very often we're looking for nurturance in some form, you know, something to soothe us, something to calm us down, or, or something to energize us. I mean, you know, when, we're, when we want caffeine and sugar, you know, maybe we're in a depressed state where we need to feel energized. And we've been, we've been conditioned through our lives that, you know, you have that sweet or you have that caffeine and all of a sudden you can do things. Now, the reality is it's doing naughty things to our bodies, but for the moment it feels good. Wow. So, so I'm here. I'm, I'm just uh, floored by this, this idea that, that we instinctively turn to some foods on a metaphorical level. That, right. That um, so maybe maybe I think like at this point it would be really helpful to kind of get your backstory, um, and then dive into you know how you came to these conclusions and what you've done with them and how you helped yourself and others. So you know what's really sad about that? Whenever anybody ever asks me that question, I start hearing the uh, you know the theme song for Dulcinea and Man of La Mancha. <laughs> La da 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 da. So. Um, well, I was the fourth child uh, to parents who were kosher caterers. We lived in a town um, where they had a store, and my mother was constantly feeding people. And I was the fourth child. I was a surprise. 
the, my brothers were much older and they were already like, you know, self, pretty much self-sufficient. And then she had this baby. Um, so while she was downstairs in the store, the first three years of my life feeding customers, um, I was often by myself or I was with, you know, a, a, a caretaker, you know, um, I had a, a nanny and I was in a way kind of abandoned by my mother. So there she's feeding all these other people, delicious things, and all these Hungarian dishes and, um, you know, they, they made homemade knishes and all kinds of, um, wonderful Hungarian dishes, you know, uh, these different apples, cinnamon, fat, sugar stuff you put in a pot and it tastes delicious. And then you have heartburn for three years afterwards. <laughs> so, um, so I went to food. My mother was definitely not, not only was, you know, she a mother and, you know, mothers feed their children, but she was feeding the world and she wasn't available to me. So on a very early level, I learned that food was love, not just the way any child would, but it was, you know, exponential because she was a caterer and she was feeding all these people. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because I think that she kind of gave me over to somebody else's care when I was very, very, very young. And isn't it interesting that I like milky things? So, so I get comfort from milky and I get comfort from sweet. And when I went to, and my mother was an amazing, amazing cook and baker. Um, somewhat also from starchy things. Like, remember one time my mother said, I'll make anything you want. What do you want? And I don't even know. You have a Hungarian background somewhere also, right? Well, re related. Okay. So there's a thing called a lekvar kreplach. Does that mean anything to you at all? Lekvar is prune butter. There you go. So there, and the crepe little, is like this, like rolled dough. Right, it's made out of potatoes. Okay. It's pota potato dough. It's potatoes and flour, and uh, you stuff it. You know, it's like a pierogi or you know something like that. Yeah. And you stuff it with this prune butter, and then she would put it. Uh, what they do is they drop them like dumplings into boiling water, and then she would take it out of there and coat it in butter. Melted butter with breadcrumbs. <laughs> She's like Paula Dinovitz. I mean, it's like, uh, can you think of anything less healthy to eat than that combination? Yeah. Well, at least it had prunes. Well, and uh, which have a little value, yeah. but you know, they're mixed. I'm, just, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm just, I'm picturing that stuff coming out dripping and coated. So, but they were really, really, really delicious. I mean, just thinking about them, my mouth goes, yay, and then my stomach goes, acid. So, <laughs> um, so that's kind of the background that I grew up in. By the time I was five, I knew how to put the egg on top of the knish when it, you know, was going into the oven. And my mother taught me how to make, you know, um, you know, ceremonial bread. I was making twisted challah at age five. Um, so did you think you were going to go into the family business? Oh, no. No, I just wanted to eat it. Uh -huh. So, you know, it was, it was fun. That, that's how I got to spend time with her. The only way I got to spend time with her was by helping her 
do things like in the kitchen or by the time I was 11, I started working full time to be with her. I, wor- I was working full time in their store at age 11. Mm. And at age 12, we were home and she was making uh, veal cutlets. And the way you make veal cutlets back then, the way she made them, she, you know, she would coat them in this breading and, and then you fry them. Now, here I was, you know, 12 years old, and my mother was making them with me, and I ate, I'm not kidding you, 12 of them. Now, they weren't huge. You know, veal cutlets were, I don't know, maybe each one was about like two inches by four inches. Yeah, so maybe, but, maybe three to four ounces. Each. I ate 12 of them at a time. And shortly thereafter, I threw up 12 of them. And I, I had never eaten a veal cutlet since then. because It was such a horrible experience. But, I mean, that's how I started. Um, I mean, there's some other things also. I, I come from... Uh, some abuse and, you know, we, I don't have to go into a real long story about it, but between nine and 13, I doubled my weight mm. and it was deliberate. I mean, not totally conscious, but it was deliberate to keep men away from me because, um, I was terrified of my sexuality and I was just, you know, coming into it and I was, you know, brought up in this religious background where anybody who even thought about sex was, you know, a slut <laughs> And um, I escaped into food. Mm, so both both an armor and a keep away sign. Both. Yeah, you know, making myself unattractive. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like you know, who wants to who wants to be with a fat girl? So I was thirteen years old and I weighed a hundred and seventy two pounds, and that was after I dieted for three days and got brave enough to get on the scale. Mm. Were you getting messages from family members, from your mother, from other people about your weight? Or was this a a solely individual private struggle? My grandmother, who lived with us, my father's mother, would scream at me, you're going to get as big as a house, you're going to get as big as a house. And, you know, um, I got called fatty and fatso. When I was in high school, I was in a, um, uh, I was the announcer for Seniors Day and, um, and my mother always dressed me in things that made me look twice as big as I was anyway. And so I was up there in this dress. I looked pregnant. And all the kids in the audience were hooting and making fun of me. It was really, it was really awful. I had, I had lost some weight when I was 14, but I couldn't, I couldn't maintain it. So I went down to like, I don't know, 145, 150. And then I, um, I gained it back and I got those hoots. Um, and then when I was 18, I lost more. I got down to an, a, a fairly normal size. It went down to about 140. And then um, I went back and forth, back and forth. And it's only been in my adult life that I got it under control. It took a long time. I worked on myself really, really hard. I had to get to know what it meant to me um, and, you know, how I was using it. Um, and then I was able to to work with my own 
uh, feelings, you know, when I would get emotional or I would feel angry or scared or lost or alone or hurt, you know, really observing myself and seeing where I was going and then trying to figure out what I was really wanting. What did I really want? Did I really want chocolate? I really wanted something sweet in my life. You know, what other sweet things were there? And I started to identify what those things were. And I, I also figured out if I really, really, really wanted something sweet, that I wasn't going to compromise. I was going to get the thing that I wanted the most. If I couldn't get the, you know, time with my mother or time with a good friend, which was really sweet or, you know, something like that, that if I'm going to have a piece of chocolate, it's going to be the best piece of chocolate. I'm going to wait until I'm not just reading the cocoa powder can, you know, like my Nestle's quick or something. Um, I mean, I could, I could have gone and taken a spoonful of Nestle's quick just to get a, you know, a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And so I, I gave myself the gift of thinking, now, what do I really, really want? If I'm going to have the best piece of chocolate in the whole world, what would it be? And I would think about it. And, and by the time I planned how I was going to go and get it, the urge went away. So when you first started tackling your weight in a serious way, did you start there with the emotional understanding and the self insight and these strategies? Or did you start with, you know, cruder forms of just dieting and restriction? I was on every diet you can imagine. I was on the Pritikin diet. I was on the Atkins diet. I was on, you know, just eat ice cream diet. Uh, you know, every single, I was on the Beverly Hills diet, um, you know, where, oh gosh, that was really disastrous because you would only eat like watermelon one day. And do you know what that does to your blood sugar? You know, here I am like 20 years old and I'm like, uh, 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 from watermelon. So, you know, you could eat an entire watermelon or two or even three. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's really funny. That's my baby, Jeremy. Okay. He's uh, Jer Jeremy He's... has four legs and paws, right? Yeah. Okay. And a monkey in his mouth. Okay. <laughs> Better than having a monkey on his back, right? Right. Well, as long as, long as he's not emotionally eating the monkey. Well, I mean, you know, I think dogs, like, out of boredom, chew things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's emotional gratification that we get, um, even if we're dogs. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, he, he cannot not chew. Uh -huh. So, um, and sometimes I feel like that, you know, I need to do something with my aggression. So I want to chew something hard or I want to chew gum. Mm -hmm. So th what I'm saying is that I started doing the traditional stuff. 500 calorie diet, the HCG diet. I'm telling you, if there's a diet, I've been on it. Unless it was invented in the last couple of years, because I don't diet anymore. So, so what, what I hear is that you know that there's obviously in my mind a huge difference between the Pritikin diet, with which I have a, a great deal of affinity mm -hmm. from a from a scientific and and philosophical perspective, and the Atkins diet, which I think of as a you know a, a dangerous misguided thing. But it, you say it doesn't. It doesn't really matter how good the diet is if the driving force 
is the, these um, unexamined and unfulfilled emotions, the, mm -hmm. the, the best diet in the world isn't going to work. Well, because you can't stay on it. You can do it for a while by brute force. You know, the whole thing about willpower. My mother would tell me, you don't have any willpower. You don't have any willpower. I have plenty of willpower. However, if I'm not dealing, if anyone is not dealing with the, you know, that, that cannonball that's about to shoot out, um, you know, because there's force being built up and, you know, the, the plunger is going back and back and back and then it's let go and then psh, it's gone. So it's, it's really hard to, to diet. Dieting itself is a hard thing. On the other hand, I eat now, you know, a very nutritious diet. Um, it's something I've chosen. I think it's good for me. I think it's satisfying to my taste buds. And um, it's choice. It's a choice rather than a restriction. So it's a way of life. I believe in a way of life rather than dieting. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way of life that you make out of a choice. And the emotional uh, drivers are going to still come up. And we need to figure out what to do when they do. Right. I think for, you know, for myself and for a lot of people, there, it's hard to discern around food addictions in terms of being purely physiological. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if we're, if we're used to eating all the, the donuts and the salty stuff and certainly coffee and other foods that are known to be chemically, biochemically addictive, and so the you know the diet people from from my camp, you know, rather the healthy eating people who who agree that this is a lifestyle, it's not a short term diet. They say just stick with it, and we we bio adapt, and within some weeks or months we down regulate our taste buds, and so broccoli and tempeh and tofu start tasting good, whereas before they were very bland. And I think that's absolutely true. But there's also this this emotional part that doesn't get down regulated unless you address it. Right. And, you know, there um, I used to have a sugar addiction. And, you know, part of that was emotional and part of it was chemical. Right. It's biochemical. And somebody told me that the reason that we want to eat sugar so much on a physiological level is that we when we eat sugar, we create yeast, little yeast cells in our body, and that the yeast actually tell the brain to tell you to eat sugar. And so I saw, I saw this yeast invasion as an army that was fighting me, because I know yeast is not good for you. And I, I knew a lot about yeast reactions in the body, and it made me angry. And um, I remember really clearly, I remember where I was living and Glenn and I were together. We'd probably been together about 10 years. And I said no to sugar and to white flour, to the things that created yeast. And I did it all in one fell swoop. And I had three days of in intense, intense cravings. Um, I didn't have a headache, but the cravings were like, uh, but I was angry at the yeast, and I thought I'm not letting anything control my body like that. So I had to, I had to, um, you know, take control of of my anger and target it uh, in a healthy way against the problem. 
And that was how I got, you, you need, there's like 72 hours to get over the intense craving. And then, you know, it's, it's weeks before you start to feel comfortable. And then it's amazing how natural sweet things taste so wonderful. Same thing with salt. And I'm sure you know this, you know, if you taper down salt, all of a sudden you taste the natural flavors and food. I love kale. I could drink kale juice every single day. And I love it. It tastes good to me. I love broccoli. It tastes good to me. You know, coming from eating, you know, apple, cinnamon, sugar, oil, and fat, you know, and, and carb. Uh, I don't even know what she called it. Maybe she called it a cocoa. But, it, I mean, it was uh, – what's that guy's name? There, was, there used to be an old uh, Jewish comedian. His name was uh, Buddy Hackett. Sure. So he said that when he left home, he thought he was dying because the fire went out. <laughs> it was his mother's cooking, right? He'd been living with heartburn for his whole life until he left home. <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually, because unfortunately I could relate to it. And I, I didn't have it all the time, but boy, that, you know, high acid producing stuff that my mother made and she'd, she'd make these, you know, coffee cakes, you know, in the old traditional way. And, um, you know, my mouth liked them. My mother actually, my mother invented a chocolate cake that was so rich that, you know, like a, a one inch piece of it was like eating, it's almost like eating fudge. So, and it was her own recipe and it was handed down. Like, you know, all of her grandchildren have the recipe. I don't have it. And I didn't want it. So. So you, you mentioned that, you know, you, you kind of went through um, an understanding of emotional eating. And you, you mentioned a few of the techniques you've used, getting angry at the yeast, asking yourself what you really want, refusing to compromise. Um, when, when did you get to a place where you felt like you, you had the upper hand? So it took a long time. It took years of my own, you know, analysis and therapy, my own, to understand what was driving me. And, you know, and having to sit down and, and ask myself, what do I want? What do I want? Okay, I want, I want a bagel. Okay, what does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of, well, there were a number of years. My mother worked in, a, in the best bagel store in South Jersey. And... What was it about that? Well, I, you know, she'd bring home a big bag of bagels and they were hot and they smelled delicious. And we would sit around and we would joke and I could put butter on it or cream cheese, mostly butter. And um, I felt filled and satisfied, warm, um, really happy, you know, being at her table, uh, and relaxing because it was my mother was not one to relax. I get that very honestly. I, you know, I, I'm like 24 seven workaholic, and and she was like that. And so those were times where she was a little bit more relaxed, and I got some attention along with you know the bagel. The same thing with pancakes. Like Glenn will notice that when I'm missing my mother, I'll say to him, "Boy, I wish I could have a pancake," and I don't eat pancakes. I haven't eaten a pancake in forever. But I'll get a desire for a pancake. 
So it's it's funny that you mentioned pancakes because you know and and so in my sort of whole food plant based community, one of the big um, efforts from a lot of chefs and, and doctors is to try to make the, the the change, the transition seem normal. So one of the things we would do is like when you said, you know, I haven't had a pancake in years. I say, well, I can find you. I can think of 10 healthy pancake recipes. You know, we could use buckwheat flour. We don't have to use oil. We could use chia seeds. There's, you know, it's just off the sweet potatoes instead of egg. You know, there's a dozen things that I can think of off the top of my head that I've seen. Go, Jeremy, off on my Facebook, you know, um, posts page. But it's it sounds like it's a little bit different to to try to substitute that. Maybe you think that's 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 less effective if it's the pancake itself that is carrying the emotional charge. So, you know, it's a combination. I think it's really, really good to have alternatives. I had protein bars like for um, I found a protein bar that. I'm comfortable with in terms of its ingredients and I've read up a lot about it and it's, it's sweet and that seems to work for me personally. So I think it's good to have substitutions that, you know, that are healthier. Um, but if I was being a purist, I would work a little bit differently and I could give you an example. Like, so Howie, if, if there was one uh, food in particular that you crave that you might not think is the best thing for you, what might that be? Chocolate. Okay, so um, what kind of chocolate are we talking about? <laughs> you know, anywhere from uh, from Valrona, Kaya Butt, uh, Maison du Chocolat, down to that spoonful of Nestle's Quick. Mm -hmm. you know. And so. I mean, Tell I'll, me I'll, about get it, I'll get it out, you know, any way I can. So we'll, I'll find a healthy recipe that has some chocolate chips in it. And I'll have a bag of chocolate chips in the house that will be singing in a, in a tone that only I can hear, apparently. Right. Or, or you know, there, here's, I'll go to Trader Joe's and I'll go, oh, look, here's this mostly healthy cereal. First ingredient is oats, but it's like chocolate clusters. So, you know, any, any, any which way I can justify it. Uh, and would you be willing to work with that a little bit? Oh, sure. So take a trip down memory lane, and I'd like you to go back in your mind to a young, positive memory with regard to chocolate. Okay. And tell me, tell me how old you are, where you are, what's happening. Well, it's recurring, but let's say it's... Um around age, you know, six to nine. Mm -hmm. um, so my mother used to buy chocolate and she would hide it around the house. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't get the sense that she had a huge problem with it. You know, I, I was, uh, I hung on her, her apron strings. So I always, whenever she went shopping, I went shopping with her. Like she wasn't, I'm sure she wasn't sneaking, you know, dozens of bars. And But, you know, she liked to have a little bit of, uh, of dark chocolate, and you know, we, in those days there wasn't a lot of variety. You could basically get Hershey's or Nestle, and we, mm -hmm. we, we got Hershey's. And there was, um, you know, special dark, and regular, and crackle. And occasionally, and she'd get these little these bags of the, the little miniatures. And and I knew after a while I knew where all her hiding places were. And sometimes she would, you know, have me go get one. And we would share it together kind of secretly. 
Tell me about that. Tell me about what it was like when you would go get it and you'd share it secretly. What was that like? What were the feelings? How did yeah? You know? well, it 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 felt like she was trusting me with a secret. It felt like um, when we were doing that, she wasn't yelling at me for anything. You know, she's sort of a, a stern Austrian lady with a lot of opinions. And um, through most of my childhood, looking back, I, I would say that she spent a lot of time sort of criticizing and nagging and following me around and telling me what to do and clean up my room and this and that. And it wasn't a very, you know, there was always something to be done. It was like, you know, being on, on the deck of a, of a Prussian warship. Where there's, you know, you're, you're sitting around. There's, certainly there's a deck to be swabbed somewhere. And so these these moments where we're just sort of enjoying a semi guilty pleasure because it was, you know, we knew it wasn't great for us, but it was it was a a pleasure. And I think for her, she could relax and taste a little bit of the sweetness of life. And, you know, she was uh, a Holocaust survivor, had uh, had moved several times in her life. And I think it brought her a little bit of of sort of respite and peace to have this little piece of sweetness in her life. Uh, and it brought you. And it brought me into a relationship with a mother who wasn't a drill sergeant. And so if instead of having, you know, a piece of chocolate today as an adult, you could be with someone where you felt, you know, trusted and having a little bit of a special moment who might that be that you could do that with? Well, cer certainly, uh, you know, my wife, my kids, uh, just a, uh, um, you know, a quiet moment where nobody's requiring anything of anyone. When we're just we're just enjoying each other as we are. And how could you set that up so that when you're having that craving for chocolate, that you might possibly consider having a moment with your wife or one of the kids or all of them. Mm. Well, we'd have to talk about it in advance because everyone's got schedules independent of my own. So, you know, I've, I'm getting this picture of, you know, picking up the red phone and, and shining the, you know, the, the bat light into the sky. Like, you know, Abba's having an emergency. Come, come, come be with him unconditionally. Otherwise, he's going <laughs> to eat some chocolate chips. Well, what about that? What about having a bat phone? Hmm. It's a challenge because, you know, um, there's so, you know, another piece of that story is that so when I started eating healthy, um, I kind of dragged them along with me and I became very judgmental. So I think there's still a lot of um, unfinished emotional business around, you know, they still feel like I judge their food choices and I probably do. So I think it's 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 a uh, it's a complicated thing. Well, what if instead of saying, hey, bat phone, because I'm going to have chocolate. What if it was bat phone? Hey, I'm aware that I need a little sweet moment with the people I love the most. Yeah, maybe a minute. Well, that's worth a try. And what do you think would happen if you did? Um, I think I'd have a lot more um, sweet moments that will will mean something right the chocolate that i eat doesn't mean anything minutes afterwards you know it's like 
the, the, my relationship with chocolate is like a series of cheap one night stands. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, exactly. You know, I mean, what are, what if you could even? I feel bad afterwards. Right. Um, like you've been had. Yeah. Is that is this all there is? You know, you were talking about kind of like making memories. Also, what if, for example, um, when you you made a series of um, you know quick little recordings, like one minute, thirty seconds, a snippet, with um, a talk you had with your wife, or something you shared with your child, or you know one of your kids. Um, and you you have them, so when you have that urge for the chocolate, you play that message. So you've got your bat phone, and then you've got your, you know, recording. All right, I'm going to try it. What do you think would happen? Well, uh, I mean, part, partly I'm skeptical that anything replaces chocolate. Um, but, in, you know, my hope would be that... It's a it's a shortcut to what I really want. Whereas the, the, the chocolate is a is a is a two dimensional false promise, but this is the real thing. And so the 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 chocolate craving was really a craving for something deeper that I figured out what it is and I satisfied it. So the chocolate craving doesn't need to exist anymore. Or it, does, it, okay. it doesn't need to be fulfilled. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I've noticed happens with people. But let's say, oh, my God, I can't get a hold of anyone. I'm not near my iPhone, so I can't listen to the recording. I'm not near my computer. I don't have it with me. Um, so let's imagine here you were, you were wanting chocolate. Okay. And I want, if you're going to have it, I want you to have the best experience you possibly can. What might that be? If you're going to get the very best piece of chocolate, what would it be? Okay, so it would be like a, th a $3 truffle, like the size of a grape from probably, you know, Belgium. Um, or a, you know, there's a, there's a, a raw chocolatier uh, in my town who, who sources fair trade organic ingredients from from all over the world and put stuff together, you know, so something something made with exquisite skill and love. Um, oh, I love that. Also, you know, so so much of chocolate is is caught up in in slave labor and, and unfair trade practices. So I would want I would want to know that the chocolate I'm eating has caused happiness and love all along its supply chain. So I'd, I, I wouldn't be happy eating something that I, I could trace back to uh, a, a, a slave plantation on the Ivory Coast. So how would you go and get it? So tell me, tell me what time of day it is that you're having this craving. Where are you? And let's see how we can solve it. Okay. Well, can't do it today because the, our driveway, is a, our, our sort of tenth of a mile long driveway is a sheet of ice. So... Even I am not so desperate to risk life and limb and car uh, to go out today. But let's let's say it's um, it's some evening. It's seven mm -hmm. o'clock, and mm -hmm. I have an interview coming up at eight for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to fade a little bit, and I don't want to eat a ton more food. And I'm I'm here in my office. I've got my mason jar 
my water jar and it's empty and I don't really feel like like walking 18 feet to fill it up. And I'm like, oh, I've had a hard day. I wrote a half a chapter. I deserve, you know, I'm just going to go get myself a bowl of cereal right now. And maybe everybody's out. They're all out at a, at a function because they know I'm recording and they don't want to be worried about tiptoeing past my office and making noise. So I'm home alone and I don't have time to go out to a store, but I've got this craving. So that, let's say that's the, the scenario. And so you don't have time to go out to the store. So is there a way that you could prepare for these moments knowing that they will happen? Is there some way you could prepare? Um, well, so I could try to have some of this stuff in the house. I'm concerned that I, w I wouldn't treat it well. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That, that it would be gone at the... And I'd be thinking about it all the time. Like, like, like the idea of sanitizing my environment means that I wouldn't have it in the house. Well, where could you have it? You could still get it, but it, it wouldn't require going as far as going to the raw chocolatier. Okay, well, I could try to store it at a neighbor's house, but we've, mm -hmm. we've only been here for six months. I don't think I want to, I want to let them know how weird I am just yet. Mm -hmm. We have a chest freezer in the mudroom. I, mm -hmm. I could kind of store it in a... I have a box, like my grandparents' old um, metal box with a skeleton key sort of thing in it. So I could put it at the bottom of that in the key, and I could hide the key somewhere up on the crawl space or under the house. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I could certainly make it a uh, a challenge and a treasure hunt to get this stuff, so that so that it would take me, you know, a good five minutes to to get it. Uh, into my mouth. And so would you be willing to wait um, a whole minute before starting that five minute? I, I say so now. So I think that's a really good idea because after that one minute, if you really want it, I want you to go and have it. Okay. So but in that one minute, think about what I'd like you to do is think about what's going on what feelings are being triggered, you know, what it reminds you of. Is there anything else you could do in that period to get some of that sweetness and that energy that you would feel good about? Mm -hmm. and, and then if you still want the chocolate, go and have it. How much would you need to have? Um, well, let's, let's say if I took one out, if they're frozen solid... I mean, it's, I'm, it's going to take me a little while to get it down anyway. So, mm -hmm. was, so let's say one. And, you know, in really enjoying it, especially if it's frozen, it'll melt in my mouth. And so the flavor will kind of explode as my taste buds get, you know, melt and warm the, the, the substance. Mm -hmm. And so would that be acceptable on some occasions? On some occasions to realize, oh, maybe I don't really need it. I can save it for later. Or I really do need it. And to have that one, would that be acceptable? Would that be an acceptable alternative? Yeah, well, it's certainly better than what I do now. Good. Good. Okay, so any guidance about the conversation when I'm feeling, you know, that, that minute? I'm just asking myself, what do I need? What am I feeling? How else can I meet those needs? 
And if I had the ideal thing that I'm yearning for, describe it in as much depth to yourself as you can. And where would you get it? So you say that like the, the act of, of fantasizing vividly about whatever chocolate, this perfect chocolate, could actually trick my brain into thinking I've had it? There's something satisfying about going through that exercise. I don't, and I, I guess maybe it's that, but it's also getting into the thought rather than the action and then thinking through whether or not you want to take action. Mm. What I feel like is different about this, and it's starting to make perfect sense to me, is that my initial reaction would be to resist the thought, mm -hmm. which creates tension. Mm -hmm. um, it, it makes me feel guilty for having the thought again, for mm -hmm. being so weak, and it's kind of fueling the very process that leads me to want chocolate. Exactly. Very well put. So, so, so really, the, the, it sounds like the, the, the centerpiece of dealing with emotional eating is it's kind of at peace talks. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And, you know, the, the, the crave food could be different at different times. People tend to have their particular ones. Like, for example, with Glenn, it's pizza. He gets these fantasies about pizza. And we'll actually work through, you know, where would he get the best piece and, you know, exactly how was it made and, you know, to imagine what it smells like, the texture, the taste, what it's like taking a bite, going down. And by the time you go through that, it's almost like you ate it. <laughs> so is, isn't there, is there ever some part, like I'm, I'm imagining there's some part of me that would be like a, a voice in my head going, I don't want to do that. I just want the chocolate. Right. And so there's no, you know, there, there's no magic bullet. There's, you have to do a little bit. And the little bit is just pausing. It's just pausing. The pause is the most important thing. Why is that? And, 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 you know, and helping yourself. Very often, it turns out when you ask people about this, they're missing something from a relationship. And sometimes it's with someone who's, you know, past that you can't even have that relationship. But who would be like that? Who might that be? And how would a conversation with that person be? Or what would it be like to go to the movies with them? Or, um, and to, to get a fix from another. Because it's usually something about nurturance that was missed. Some form of comfort, nurturance. It might also be... Um, it might also be texture. So for example, if I am really craving, sometimes what I'm craving is softness. And my house is filled with soft materials. Like right now, we have to, we're getting a rug clean because one of the dogs had an accident and, and I've got this really scruffy, ooky $25 rug on the floor at the moment just because I can't stand um, not having any kind of texture. But I would rather have fleece, soft, you know, like pillow type furniture. I have a Tempur-Pedic bed. I have down, you know, pillows. I've got the softest blankie you can imagine that touches my body. I don't use a sheet under it, so I have to clean my blankets more often than, you know, most people because I won't put a sheet between. <laughs> but it's soft. It's so soft. And it's almost like, you know, cuddling up to a soft mommy. 
my, mine always come back to my mother. So, <clears throat> cause I didn't get enough of her when I was, you know, an infant and stuff. But so sometimes it's a texture in your life that can change things. Right. Well, you know, you, you mentioned about sort of chewing and being, you know, angry and wanting to crunch. I remember reading somewhere about um, food scientists and, and packaging scientists for, you know, like Nabisco and General Mills and com- big companies like that, figuring out the, the ideal crunch point for a chip and, and how hard you have to pull to open the bag to kind of um, evoke these, these um, very primal sort of hunting and killing aggression impulses. Right. The tension release from them. Exactly. And did you ever eat a soggy chip? Oh, my God. That's like the most <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> like, ugh, why bother? Yeah. No, when the, when the, when the tortillas get, get stale or soft, they go in the oven until they're crunchy again. Or they go in the garbage can, right? Yeah. So there's a, I forget what his name is, Brad's Chips or something. Do you know the, the kale chips? Yeah, the, these are, yeah. The ones that come in the bag, not in the, uh, the, the box. There's like a plastic box. Uh-huh. The ones that come in the bag are really chips. Okay. And they've got a great texture and they're great for hummus. Oh my God, they're like the best. So those satisfy my need to crunch. And, you know, what are they? They're kale. It's just dehydrated kale with some flavoring. Right. So it sounds like there's, there's a, we don't have to deny all of our emotions. It's, it's okay to sublimate some of them with food if we, you know, choose foods that serve us. But also to, to recognize, it sounds like that, that every, every one of these cravings that, that I guess I've, I and most people I know view as kind of curses are really doors to a, uh, a kind of a deeper relationship with ourselves. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you could use this just by itself to fully analyze yourself. Like your whole story. You know how, like they say, a dream is your whole lifetime? Uh-huh. Well, your food choices of the moment tell a whole story about what, you, what you're going through. It's really a fascinating kind of study. And since food is nurturance on all levels, um, it gives us clues about how to take better care of ourselves and how to give ourselves love. Wow. Do you also deal with not just the, uh, the quality of the food, but sort of the quantity and pace at which we ingest it? You know, a lot of people well, you know, in my community eat the right stuff, but they eat too much of it. And they eat it too fast. And, and by they, I mean we. I mean me. <laughs> well, and what was interesting, yeah, I do. And I didn't have to do it directly with you because you did it naturally. You talked about one piece. You really wanted one piece. You didn't say 10. Yeah, you well, said I'm, one. I'm also on the air. so Quantity comes up naturally in the discussion. Uh-huh. Most people don't say, well, I need a whole bag you know, giant bag of chips. Right. Well, and I, I guess it goes to, um, I, I can't remember the source of the quote, but something like, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Oh, I love that. So that if I'm eating M&Ms for a feeling of a sweet life or, or ice cream for maternal nurturance, there's no amount of M&Ms or ice cream that is going to do the trick. Exactly. 
this this is fascinating, and I I didn't realize when we we arranged this call that I was going to get a a bonus <laughs> session for myself. Um, so I guess that's the very fun. Making make, make, you know I don't I don't I don't mind making it public if it if it helps other people. Um, but speaking of which, so do you do you work with uh, with other people who have these kinds of issues? Oh sure. So tell tell me a little bit about that about how you, how, you know um, you're you're up in New Hampshire so I assume you you work uh, remotely with people. Um. Well, there are actually there are people who live in New Hampshire. <laughs> 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 yeah, I work I work in person uh, and I work remotely. Uh, you know, I was brought up in a tradition of doing coaching, counseling on the phone. And so I've been doing that for for a long time. Even when I, you know, when I do market research, um, which is my other hat that I wear, a lot of it is remote. So I'm very, very comfortable remote. There's something wonderful actually about working remotely, which is sometimes when you're in person, um, the client, especially when they're talking about something uncomfortable about giving up a bad habit um, or considering a new way to treating it, they feel scrutinized. Because, you know, the coach or the counselor or the therapist is looking at them. And even if the coach is looking with the most loving eyes, uh, we bring our own perceptions of how people see us and it's uncomfortable. Whereas on the phone, uh, you know, we're comfortable on the phone or on Skype because we've been talking on the phone to people since we were one and a half or two. Hi. <laughs> you know, Mommy put you on the phone early on. You get to say hello to your grandparents and cousins and stuff. And so we are accustomed to being on the phone. It's comfortable. Whereas if you have to go to somebody's office, you know, there's there's a whole other dynamic that comes into play, which is not necessarily comfortable. So I am a big proponent of doing work remotely, a big proponent of webinars and uh, Skype and telephone calls. Um, for the comfort level. And, of course, I do see people in, in person, and we do do training in person. So if people want to get in touch with me, I can give you a phone number where they can reach me. Sure, that'd be great. And if there's any, you know... Um, I can send them to a website as well. A website or anything, you know, I can post things in show notes as well, but I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this who, uh, you know, would like some, some help and guidance and can, get, and can sense the freedom that's possible, not just, you know, the freedom from the problem, but a much greater freedom. Um, you know, Joseph Campbell says, where you stumble, there lies your treasure. So I, th I think uh, there's, I think people who are listening to this are getting a sense of the, the huge treasure that's available in what just looks like uh, a pit. Right. And it's not like an olive pit or a prune pit. <laughs> We're, I could, we're back to the Lekvar, huh? <laughs> I, I, you know, I haven't had Lekvar in probably like 20 years. Oh, my God. I wonder if they make it, you know, like, is there, is there some natural Lekvar without sugar? Wow. You know what? If, I, if, I, if I can find it online, I'll post a link just so people can <laughs> know what it is. So, yeah. So how can, so, how can they find you? Sure. They can call my cell and then, you know, leave a message and I'll get back to them. 603-505-5000. And they can go check out my site, emotionaleatingsecrets.com. Awesome. 
All right, well, I'll post those. And for people who are listening here, it's emotionaleatingsecrets.com. That's pretty memorable. Good. And um, thank you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for my, uh, my impromptu therapy session. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have to say right now, I have no craving for chocolate whatsoever. So That's what happens. That's what happens. You know, like uh, Glenn did it with me because, you know, as you know, Glenn's a psychologist as well. And Glenn, my husband, and he, um, it was about the bagel. And I went hunting in my mind's eye and went hunting through every possible bagel store in New Hampshire. Getting a bagel in New Hampshire is not the easiest thing to get, you know, a really good bagel. And by the time I was finished, I had no desire to eat a bagel. I had satisfied my craving just by thinking it through. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's, uh... and, and that doesn't always happen. That's why, you know, if you're going to have it, have the best one. Have exactly what you want on the plate you want it on, in the situation you want it on. Take a few minutes and fully enjoy it. Because mm. well, I assume that that sort of taking care of yourself is, is a meta message right, to your subconscious. That, okay, you, you know what? We're okay here. We're, you're going to get the nurturance you need. I'm not, I'm not leaving you all alone. Exactly. Well said. Well, Dr. Sharon Livingston, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Plant Yourself podcast. Really, really fun. And I love Plant Yourself because, um, you know, it's a way of nurturing and growing ourselves. I love it. Right on. All right. Thanks a lot. And talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Dr. Sharon Livingston. And if you want more from her, you can find it at EmotionalEatingSecrets.com. Um, just a preview, I have just launched a health consulting service, and you'll be hearing more about that in the days and weeks to come. Um, but basically, it's a combination of giving people access to good information about health uh, so that they can move away from the medical model of treating symptoms of disease and take charge of their own health and move toward true wellness. So again, more on that in coming weeks. Next week, I talk with Karen Page, author of The Vegetarian Flavor Bible. And there's a lot of connections that you'll hear between that interview and the one you just heard with Sharon. As always, if you feel like supporting the show, please share it on social media. Um, tell your friends about it. Leave a comment and a review on iTunes. And there's always a spot for donations to help uh, the hosting and to uh, pay for my time as I go out and find the world's most interesting people to interview about planting ourselves on this precious planet. So as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>